salvation, which is important. But Christ came. He could have done that, if you think about it, in so many different ways. God could have redeemed us without having to come on the earth. He didn't specifically have to become placed within the womb of a virgin, go through nine months of becoming a baby, being birthed, specifically being born in Bethlehem in a stall with animals. He didn't have to do it that way. He didn't have to walk on the earth for 30 years and then minister on the earth for three years and then die after being abused by his own creation. He didn't have to do that. But he chose to do that. And he chose to do that for a reason. And so, as again, as I was meditating upon this coming into the season and asking the Lord what he would have me to, to teach on, I just kept thinking about the impacts of, of what he'd done. And every time I considered the impact, it just kept coming back to John's epistle here. And it was kind of fun this morning, as I considered this, I, Sunday school I was mentioning the fact that in my quiet time, I'm kind of going through a little bit of Isaiah as well, um, and so, which is kind of interesting. And this morning I got to go through Isaiah 6 and see it from a whole new way. And a lot of times we see things from whole new directions based upon other things that we're doing and studying. And so since I'm going through 1 John at the same time, you know, I saw this kind of little thing. Isaiah, when he, he, in the, the year the King Uzziah dies, we're told what? He, he what? He sees the Lord. He sees Adonai, okay? And then, so we go through the whole process of what he sees and all that kind of stuff, and he realizes that he's a man of unclean lips and lives amongst people with unclean lips, right? And he says, woe is me. And an angel comes with a tongue and burns his lips, okay? And then we're told that he hears Adonai. He hears the Lord. Isaiah gets to see the Lord, and he gets to hear the Lord. But in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, we read, that which was from the beginning, which we have seen, which we have looked upon, we got to see Jesus, that which we, we heard, they get to hear it, but then John goes on to say one more thing. Does anybody remember? Which our hands have handled. Concerning the word of life. But our hands have handled. Isaiah, Moses, they got to see God. They got to hear God. But they never got to what? Touch him. How do I know that the incarnation is real? John got to what? He got to touch him the details that are in God's word. And so as we have, have looked at this, we have seen that as the resurrection is the core of the gospel message, so the incarnation is the foundation of the message. The resurrection is, is critical, but only because a physical Christ died physically and then came, rose physically. I mean, you say, okay, that's a no-brainer. But that meant that he had to be born, what? Physically. He had to be incarnate. He had to take on flesh in order for all this to happen. And so it's the foundation of the message. And we've seen then, as we've looked at this in, in 1 John chapter 1, how it begins with the, the importance, the impact of the incarnation on the revelation of God. If Jesus hadn't been born of a virgin, 
If God hadn't become flesh, then the word of God is a lie. You can't pick and choose which parts of the word of God you want to believe. It's all or nothing. If God's a liar, he's a liar. Does that make sense? If he can't hold, tr- if he can't do what he has promised with a virgin and with his own presence coming in, and I'm not going to go through all that message again, then he's not going to do the re- resurrection thing. That's just a story too. That's just a myth. I'm not saying it is, but if you believe the other's a myth, then the resurrection's a myth. They hinge on one another. The revelation of God is, is critical. Well, the redemption of man is critical upon it then as well. Remember we talked about if Jesus had come to the earth, but he wasn't born of a virgin, then he would be under sin, just like you and I are, because all men have sinned, and we're told that the sin passes down through the father. And so if Joseph was his father, he would have been born into sin. If he was born into sin, he wouldn't be without blame. He wouldn't be without blemish. He couldn't be the perfect sacrifice. Only God himself could be the perfect sacrifice. And so God, Yahweh, declared from the Old Testament on through that he himself would come, that Yahweh would be amongst them. And so Emmanuel, God with us, that God would come and that he himself would be the payment for our sins because no man could ever do that. And so Christ came. So the impact of the incarnation, the revelation of God, the redemption of man. And then last week we began to look at the fact that those who are in Christ will reflect the example that he set in his incarnation. That as he walked on the earth, he set for us an example of how followers of his ought to walk on this earth. And we see that John brought this together. Oh, oh, oh skip, skipping apart. That John did all that in order to present, bring the fullness of joy to them. And so last week as we got into this, we looked at the goal of John's message, remember? And it was that their joy may be full. And remember when we talked about pleroma, and actually pet pleromete here, that, that it was in a perfect sense of this word, which means to be entirely full, like that, that, that wine goblet that, that you can't put another drop in or it spills out over. And that it was in a perfect sense, which means a past action that has a continuing result, that your joy, because Jesus Christ came in the flesh, because they heard him, because they saw him, because they handled him, that God had revealed himself in the flesh to us, that our joy should be what? Everlasting. It should be ongoing. It should be perpetual. That there should never be any stop to it. That you may be perpetually filled with what? Joy. And so, if your joy is like a roller coaster, then your joy isn't based upon fully in him. Because we're told that Christ was incarnate that you might have perpetual joy and that your joy is a reflection of the joy of Christ living inside you. Jesus said in John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came that we might have the fullness of God's joy in us. Not on and off, not here and there, but all the time. And so when we're missing out on the, on the joy of the Lord, it's because we have changed our focus. Last week, we began looking at that in the, the, the part of the obedience side by considering the, the light. We're told by John that there are certain um, things that will be evident in those who know 
Christ, who have the joy of Christ residing in them. First of all, we saw that those who are in Christ will believe the truth of his incarnation. Okay, It's just going to be the fact that if um, they're antichrists, that's what John calls them, antichrists, one who are against Christ, who do not believe that he came in the flesh. So if you have people out there who think that Jesus just came spiritually, that he just emanated on this man called Jesus at the cross or, or after the birth or at the ministry, and there's a lot of different scenarios out there. Some people believe that Jesus, the man Jesus was just a man Jesus, but that God, the Spirit, came upon him when he was baptized. Remember, because we see the, the dove that comes down, right? And so they'll say, God, God wasn't filling him until that moment. And at that moment, God filled him. But then God left him just before he died. Okay? I mean, that's a, that's a theology that's out there. I mean, it's just kind of weird. It, it goes against the rest of Scripture. But that's what they believe. Because they can't comprehend how God could what? Be encased. Die, but be encased in a human. Think about it. I mean, it's hard enough, it's hard enough for us to, to think about a baby. A baby. <laughs> And it's God, the fullness of God bodily in this little bitty baby. Can you comprehend that? I can't comprehend that. I mean, God's beyond the universe. And how does he eat the fullness of God bodily? But bring it even further. Nine months earlier, he was just in a zygote. Do you believe that, that life happens at conception? I do. Do you believe it's a baby the entire time it's in a womb? I do. Do you believe it has a soul? I do. Do you believe it has a spirit? I do. And so I believe the fullness of God was wrapped up in that seed. I don't get it. I can't explain it. But what a marvelous truth that God was able to do. And many times when we can't wrap our heads and our brains around something that God says is true in his word, we do what with it? We rewrite it. <laughs> we change it to, to be something that we can explain. Why do that? God is beyond anything I could ever explain. If I could explain God, then I would be beyond God. I don't want that, do you? Those who are in Christ will be walking then in his light, his love, in his life. Last week we looked at the light part, and we see how John immediately comes, the shot across the bow, and says, if we say we have that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, if we say we have fellowship with him, and we walk in darkness, we, we lie. We lie, and we do not the truth. What an incredible thing. And we talked about then how the contour of my life, if the context of my life, you know, it, from your angles this way, if it's not looking, if it's not revealing a life that is walking with Christ and I'm not steadily becoming more and more Christ-like in my life, chances are I'm not his. Do you understand? And the only one I'm lying to and the only one I'm deceiving is who? Myself. In the end, I'm going to stand before the judge. And I'm going to give an account to he who knows, who is able to discern between the thoughts and intents of my heart, whether my light is really light. And remember what Jesus said? So therefore, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? How great, how awful to think that you are righteous. And all along, it's only self-righteousness. How great the darkness is when we're wallowing in our own self-righteousness. John continues on 
with then talking about that we're supposed to walk in love. Let's read three passages here real fast. The predominant um, text is going to be from chapter 4, but we have in chapter 2 as well, 1 John 2, we'll read verse 7 to 11. It says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness. For that light and darkness thing, refer back to last week. Is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Turn to chapter 3. Beginning at verse 10. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth, and we shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Oh, three more verses. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep those commandments which, and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is the commandment, that we should believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ and love one another as he has given us commandment. And then the last passage here in chapter 4, which um, Chuck already read, so I'm not going to reread all that, but drop to chapter 5, where it says, beginning verse 1 and 2, says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Do you see how these three things, the light, the love, and then we're going to get to the life, are all inter intertwined? the light and the love here, how they're going to reflect upon one another. And so going through this, the first thing we see is the command, Christ's exhortation for us to love, and we see the command of Christ in chapter 2. It says, an old commandment that I give to you, a new commandment that I give to you. Well, the old commandment is the commandment that Christ gave to us, which Christ said was a what? A new commandment, okay? And the new commandment was that we should what? Love one another, Okay. And so we see the same thing stated here in chapter 3 as we read through it, that it's a commandment. It's not a request. Okay? This is not a, oh, I wish you would. This is a what? This is a command. Who is it a command from? Command from Christ. 
I know I'm not under the law. I'm under what? Grace. And so for being under grace, I don't have any commandments. That's wrong. That's wrong. Jesus is my Lord. He's not just my Savior. We like terms Savior. That's I'm riding down the road, and I get into a wreck. My car flips off the road. It's, it's catching on fire. I'm, 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 I can't get out. You know, my, my bones are broken or whatever. And you ride up. You, you, you see it. You see the accident. You don't realize it's me. So you get out, and you come, and you rip open the door, and you pull me out. And, uh, and, and you pull me out, okay, because the car's ready to, to explode. And we, you, we, you grab me, and, you th- and we throw, throw me and, and yourself into the ditch, and the car goes. <laughs> At that moment, you are my Savior because you saved me. You're my deliverer. You delivered me. So, see what I'm saying? I mean, so the term, now, I'm not going to heaven because you, what, pulled me out of a burning car. Make sense? When we talk about Jesus being a Savior, we're talking about a what? Eternal deliverer, okay? But we like that concept of eternal deliverance. We like the fire, the fire insurance thing, you know, that now I don't have to worry about going to hell because I, I prayed this prayer. That's not why Jesus came. Jesus came to transform your life and he gave you commands to follow along with it, okay? And so we see these commands throughout this passage, throughout 1 John, in every one of those readings, I don't know if you noted that as we read through these things, okay, that a command, a command, a command, a command, a command, okay? If he only had to say it once, it was important, but John makes pains to, to say it over and over and over again numerous times throughout his epistle so that the people knew that what? They were commanded to love. Well, that all comes from John 13, where Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Wow. So walking in the light is important. Walking in obedience, following the commands of Christ is huge. Okay? So, you know, if you say that you walk, you, you have fellowship with him and you walk in darkness, you lie and do not the truth, that's big. But for everybody else out there in the world, what's the primary testimony that will let them know that you know Jesus? Our love for one another. I love when you guys start giving testimonies about how God is using each other in each other's life. All these one another passages, we don't have time for that this morning but receiving one another, accepting one another, loving one another, praying for one another. All these one another passages throughout the the New Testament. That's what the church is about. The church isn't a building, the church is people. And when the church begins to act like the body of Christ and begins to do the things that Christ would do, the people of the world, they get it. Or, well, they don't necessarily get it. They see something that's what? They see something that's different. And they wonder what it's all about. It's an exciting thing. But Jesus' command, his new commandment, really is based upon the foundation of an old commandment. That's the concept of the old commandment. Leviticus chapter 19 says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. So, have you heard that before? It's not the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength, right? But the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if we who are called by his name know that, other than our love for God, which should be preeminent, 
where is the love for my neighbor going to be most revealed, reflected here in the assembly? And if you don't love those who you are with, John's going to say later, if you can't love the ones that you can't, you do see, how can you ever say that you love the one that you, you do not see? It's not true. Because your reflection of your love for God is going to come out in the love for your neighbor, and specifically for we in, in the assembly are, is going to come out with our love for one another. And if you can't love the people who love the one that you love, who are you ever going to love? Does it make sense? I mean, if you're rooting for the Steelers today, you're my buddy. If you're rooting for the Bengals, I'll put up with you. That, I didn't say nothing about the Cowboys. Yeah, a couple weeks ago, Roddy and I, it was a good thing he was in Oklahoma because we were playing, the Steelers were playing the Cowboys. We would have had a feud going on. And, uh, but for the records, the Cowboys beat the Steelers. So anyways, I love them anyway. So in the Lord. But that's all a joke, okay? It's NFL, you know, whatever. But we get that when it comes to college football, and we get that when it comes to NFL football. We get that whether you like baseball, you get that whenever you like whatever stuff. Make sense? We kind of have this camaraderie and these kind of like, you know, type stuff. But if you cannot love the ones who love the one you love, how can you really love the one you say you love? Does it, you get it? Doesn't it make sense? And so, the old commandment, a new commandment. But it ultimately is a what? An old commandment. It hasn't changed. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The things go on. Well, the confirmation of our salvation then comes into it. The command from our Savior, but the confirmation of our salvation is next. Look what it says there in chapter 2, verse 10. He who loves his brother abides in what? In the light. If you love your brethren, if you love your brother, you're going to know that you what? Abide in the light. If you were struggling before, well, you know, your life's kind of like this, and yes, maybe it's going upwards, but how can I do the things that I do sometimes? You know, the Romans chapter 7 things. But if you have real love, true love, and we'll talk about that in a moment, for your brethren, then you know what? Probably you're in the light. Go to chapter 3. Verse 14. We know. We what? We know. We know that we have passed from death to life because what? We love our brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Okay? There's an assurance there. Drop down to verse 19. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. If you love the brethren, there is assurance in that. Okay? Hello. There we go. In chapter 4, I won't go all through all these, but as Chuck read it, I hope you saw all these. You can go through all these passages. Verse 7 and 8, verse 11 and 12, verse 16, verse 20, chapter 5, verse 1. All these things are telling us that if you love the brethren, you can know that you are truly saved. But the converse is true. And he keeps saying it. But if you don't love the brethren, if you have no love for the church, you need to check your salvation. It's not me saying it. It's God saying it. Remember, God is giving us this word through John because he loves us. And he doesn't want us to walk in deception. He wants us to know the truth. Well, we have 
Christ's exhortation to love, and then John tells us about God's example of love. And that is, we're told in, first, in chapter 3 and, verse, and chapter 4, um, chapter 3, verse 16, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. We ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. In chapter 4 we read, in this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son for the propitiation for our sins. So, what did God do? What did God do because he loved us? He sent his son. He sacrificed. We're going to come back to that in a moment. He gave the what? Ultimate sacrifice. He gave us the best. He didn't hold back from us. He did it in a way that would reveal to us how much he loved us. Again, he could from all high, quote-unquote, could have just made a decree, an edict, that all those who climb Mount Kilimanjaro and grab one of the flags that are there would be redeemed. Could have done that. Ben, Ben, Nancy, it's been later in life that you came to know Christ. Oh, what a bummer that would have been to have to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, you know, when you're 80 years old, right? I mean, it just, I mean, but he didn't do that. What did he do? He came to walk on the earth and to die for us. How cool is that? What was the motivation? I love this. Why did God do this? Chapter 4, verse 8, he who does not love does not know God because God is what? Love. Verse 16, we have known and believed that the love of God for us, God is love. Why did God do that? He is love. Do you get it? Love is so much a part of him that you can describe him by the word itself. God is love. How do people describe you? Bob is selfish. Now, I'm picking on me. You can put your own name in there, please. You don't have to say, yes, Bob is selfish. Okay. But how do they describe you? When John thinks of God, he says, God is love. I think God is faith when true. That's chesed and emet is the stuff that God has just placed on me, but I like God as love. It's all, it's all, you know, he's love. And if you are so filled, think about this, with love, what's going to happen? It's going to just exude out of you. Ladies, that sponge in your kitchen at your sink, you stick it in the soapy water, right? And when you just squeeze it just a little bit, what comes out? Soapy water. Lemonade doesn't come out. It's only going to come out what was what? Filling it up. And so if you took that sponge and you squeezed all the soapy water out of it and stuck it in the lemonade jar, no longer would you get what? Soapy water. Now you'd get what? So, so yeah, lemon, lemon scented soapy water. Anyway, you're good. No, no, no. You did a good job of rinsing it, wringing it out. And you get lemonade. Okay, I don't know if I'd still drink it, but anyways, you get lemonade. So the point is, when your life is squeezed, what's coming out of you? You got any sugar in that lemonade? Mm, or people take a taste of that and they go, that's okay, I think I'll have the tea. And so, God is love. That's the motivation for the manifestation of his sacrifice for you. 
Now we get into the heavy hitter part, right? And that is our expression of that love. We're told by John that, first of all, there in chapter 2, that we express our love for others by what we do not do. By what we do not do. We're told the one loving the brother of his, this is my literal translation, okay? The one loving the brother of his is abiding in the light, and a stumbling block is not in him. There's not a cause for stumbling in him. A stumbling block, literally, it says a stumbling block is not in him. The, the, the word there for stumbling block is the word um, scandalon, where we get our word what from? Scandal, or to be scandalized, right? And so scandal, scandalon, and it literally means something that causes someone to trip or to fall, okay? And so in God's word, we're, especially in New Testament specifically, okay, and then it brings in the Old Testament from it. You'll see this in a moment. That word is, is critical when it comes to our relationship with one another, identification of it. First of all, we see in these verses, Matthew 13, 41 and 42, 16, verse 23, Romans 14, verse 13, and Revelation 2, verse 14, the word scandalon's all there. You can check me out on all these, okay? But I knew for the sake of time, I probably wouldn't have time to go through all these. But in Romans chapter 14, okay, we're told that if meat causes my brother to stumble, if meat is a scandalon to my brother, I won't what? Eat meat. That we should make it our endeavor not to put a scandal, scandal on in the path of our brothers. That if something is going to cause them to sin, if something's going to cause them to stumble, that I ought not do that. And if I exert my liberty, saying, oh no, in Christ, in Christ, I have redemption, I have freedom, I'm not under the law anymore, so therefore I have liberty, and I can do whatever I want to do. If I use my liberty as occasion of my flesh, Galatians chapter 5, that I am not loving my neighbor as myself. I'm not loving my brother. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 that the sum, summation of the law is this, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And so therefore you don't, do not use your liberty as an occasion for your flesh, but in love you serve one another. So one of the greatest expressions of my love for the brethren is seeking not to push my desires, my selfish will on you if it will cause you to fall into sin or to stumble. Now, that's hard. That's rough. Because a lot of times we assume on the, other, on the flip side that our um, idiosyncrasies, and I forgot to light the candle here, didn't I? This is for love, the reflection of Christ in our love. That we think that some of our idiosyncrasies are really offenses and that other people need to um, focus on. And so years ago when I was in seminary um, at the church we attended, they had the, the invitations to the end, people come down the aisle and that kind of stuff. And they would have some of the seminarians um, be the counselors. So this isn't a story about me, it's a story about somebody else. Um, but, and then they would have, when a woman came down, they would send her with a woman. When a man came down, they would send her with a man. Makes sense, right? 
And so it was a very large church. And so this woman came down the aisle, and um, they handed her off to one of the seminarian wives, and she took him to one of the back rooms, and she says, um, I'm going to mess this up, but basically, you know, how can I help you? Um, is there a problem? And, and the lady basically said, you're the problem. You're the problem. And she says, and, you know, just, wow, <laughs> you know, I don't know this woman. How does this, you know, how does, it was all about her makeup. This woman didn't believe that you should wear makeup. And so she then accused the seminarian's wife then of this whole thing about being an offense to her. That's not this. The woman wasn't going out and becoming a tramp and a harlot because the, the seminarian's wife was wearing makeup. Does that make sense? If there was a woman who did struggle with that and putting on the show, does it make sense? And you knew it, and you, put your, you made yourself up, ladies, and so I'm just picking that illustration because of the one I just gave, and, and you knew, and you thought, she needs to get over it. Make sense? Then that would be a sin. That makes sense? Because you would be doing something that would be causing her to stumble. Okay? But if it's just your taste, your preference, I don't like this style of music, then that's not an offense. But now, somebody grew up in rock music, was a DJ or whatever, and for years, I mean, I had to honestly deal with this one, and I said, I'm, I'm probably the weaker brother on this one, okay? I mean, that's, where, that's my past, man. That's what I grew up in. And so, when I heard, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, before I knew that it was a hymn, I heard Paul Simon's American tune. Same music. And so, I was in seminary, and I was listening to Christian radio, and they had an instrumental on, of O Sacred Head Now Wounded. I never knew that song before. Oh, sacred head now wounded. You know the song? Okay. Well, I won't sing a Paul Simon song. Anyways, but I could. I know all the words. It's all, all in this computer. Okay? It's all there. And that's what I heard. And so now the rest of the day, what am I doing? I'm doing Simon and Garfunkel. And I, I apologize for some of you right now because this is causing you to stumble and I shouldn't do that. That's rough. Going into Home Depot is rough. Going into Lowe's, it's rough because they like playing what? The golden oldies. Guess who's golden oldies now, huh? And so I wish I'd still go, well, they go back to the 50s, and my dad listened to all that, so I'd probably be singing all that stuff too. Anyways, the, the point is, that causes me to stumble. That, it trips me up. Because now I spend the rest of the day trying to get the trash out of my brain. Does that make sense? And when that trash is in, the, in your brain, remember we've talked about this, all, all the synapses that come together, all your little indices of your, of your computer brain, okay? And... Those songs usually go together with what? Events and actions and different things of my life past. And so when I counsel people in, in counseling, in different marital counseling situations and just whatever counseling, it brings up a lot of my trash of my past, the things in my closet that you all don't know, some things my wife doesn't even know, and I don't want you all to know. You don't need that trash. Make sense? It's bad enough I got to deal with that trash. But if I know that you have trash in your past, that in doing such and such will cause you to stumble, and I do it anyway, how can I say that I really love you? I love me more than I love you. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, let nothing be done through strife 
or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Let not, not, let not man look upon his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very morphe, the very form, the very nature God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. I need to, and we're going to come back to this in just one moment, I need to place your value above my value. If I love you with the love of Christ, then I will place your value above my value. And when I say, they'll get over it. This is what I want to do. And we won't ask my family how many times that happens in my house. But you get it? That really, I mean, we're talking about it here in the house, but you can really bring it back into your house, right? Then it's really an ouch, isn't it? Because we exert our own desires over top of the desires of those whom we say we love. And can we really say we love them when we become selfish instead of selfless in the situation? So the identification is these things that we don't do. But the other half of the, um, the uses of this word, Romans 9, 1 Corinthians 1, Galatians 5, Galatians 5 1 Peter 2, is about the only stumbling block, the only scandal on that there's supposed to be. There is a scandal on that you, well, we cannot avoid. What's the stumbling block that cannot Jesus Christ? He is the stumbling block. He is the one which people should stumble over. They shouldn't stumble over me. Does that make sense? I should seek to make the path clear that they have the decision whether to stumble over Christ or receive him. He is the stone of offense and the rock of stumbling, and he should be it alone. But how many times I take his place and make people stumble over me instead, and they never hear the real message, the real meaning of Christmas, huh? Because they're looking at my desire for myself rather than my desire for them. Secondly, on the flip side, it's showing our love by what we do, do, what we do. And so in 1 John 3, you can see the different colors there, okay? But it says, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. Whoever has this world's goods and sees not see his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in what? Truth. If, on the flip side, this isn't a matter of causing him to stumble, but now you see someone in the assembly and they have a need. Gerald, there were two testimonies about you today. Don't get glorified. Don't get boastful. I know you're not, but... I always hate when that happens because now I forget your rewards in heaven. They're all gone because you just got them on earth. And, uh, but, and I'm not telling you guys not to say that. That was encouraging, I think, for the rest of the body to hear that. Make sense? You're not up front every Sunday leading the music, 
I know most of the people are saying what? Amen. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, but you're not up front leading the music, right? And you're not always, you've, you've taught on Wednesday nights and stuff, but you're not preaching on Sundays. And I'm not putting him down. I'm just saying that in, in the end, when people look at the church and they say, whose church is that? They're really talking about me. But it's not my church, is it? Whose church is this? Jesus Christ. That's not ours. It's Jesus Christ. We are the church, but it's not our church. It's Jesus' church. You get it? I'm just a voice box. That's all I am. And I'm just a member of the body, as Gerald is a member of the body. And God, we're told in 1 Corinthians 12, that God has placed us in the body for his purposes. And we all have a purpose being in this assembly. We all bring something, if you would, quote, unquote, to the table. Does that make sense? And if you are not serving the brethren, if you're not bringing something, if you're only coming to get and not to give, how can you say you love? Because God's love is giving, not grabbing. Jesus said when he came to the earth, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve. And in, in John 13, we read that in the context of the, the Last Supper, when he took off his, his outer garment and he put on the towel and he washed their feet, he says, you call me Lord and Master, and such it is. But, but if now I have served you, I have left you a what? An example that you ought to do this to one another. This is the example of how you love somebody else. You see a need that they have, and then you do what? You get involved. You accept responsibility. You reject passivity. You look toward the future reward. You get involved. I promise you, I'm one of the most laziest people there are. And I look for ways to not get involved because I want to please me. Make sense? But there's that battle that Paul talks about that rages, that rages within me. Because in my flesh, I want to please me, but in my spirit, I want to please God. In my life's prayers, I want to know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to be conformed to his image. I want to press toward the mark for the prize of the high call of God in Christ Jesus. And I know that in doing that, I've got to get past Bob and be looking to others. And though I may want to do something else, your needs are above mine. Years ago, a very good friend of mine, and I only use this again because it's, from, it's me, Steelers were in the Super Bowl. So, I mean, talking about idols of idols, right? I mean, if there's any time I'm going to be setting apart, you know, it's to see the Super Bowl. And we just happened to have that Sunday night off at church, you know? I was the one doing the schedule. I don't know how it happened. Anyways, no, seriously, though, it, it was scheduled off. And so it, it was already scheduled off. And so, but my friend called me 15 minutes before kickoff and feigned a problem. Friend. He was playing with me. But I've always remembered it because it, I didn't know he was playing with me. And it was a what? No, not a temptation. It was a test. If a temptation, I would have failed and I would have said, sorry, buddy, I'll see you in tomorrow morning, you know? But it was a test because I said, I'll be over right away. And that was a moment for our friendship really to develop as well without it being stated. Because his need was above my want. Does that make sense? No, I'm not saying that to glorify myself. I really not. 
okay? But that's where rubber meets the road. For me, that rubber met the road real quick that moment. Does that make sense? And that's it. When you have something you want to do, something you want to accomplish, something you want to buy, expenditure of your funds, but somebody else has a what? A need. Now, if yours is to buy rice so your family can eat, I'm not saying that. But if you're having steak and your brother's having nothing, then we have a problem. And that's the problem of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You can go and read that one. We love our brothers, our brethren, by what we do, by how we get involved in their life, how we care about the needs that they have. So back to Philippians chapter 2. Considering the value of others above your own will be manifested in your willingness to sacrifice. That's what we see that God did. God saw our need, and he placed our value above his own. And he came and he died. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that one eternal moment, I can't, again, fi eternal finite, how does it come together? I mean, God who is eternal and has no concept of time and is not within time, is in time. And all this is happening within time and yet he's beyond time. I don't get it. It's so hard for me to comprehend. The math part of me just kind of goes. <laughs> but in this one eternal moment, God the Son was separated from God the Father. It never happened before. Why? Because he became sin. He who knew no sin became sin in what cannot be found in the presence of God. And at that moment, in that eternal moment, in the triunity of God, I don't get it. God the Father turned his back on God the Son. And Jesus paid the ultimate penalty, the separation from God that I deserve. That's love. He placed my value above his own. That's the love that I'm supposed to emulate. Considering the needs of others above your own will be manifested in a willingness to share. If your needs are above my needs, then you will share time, talents, treasures. You'll minister to me. If you care only about yourself, how many people care about you? One. And so when you have a, a problem, guess what? You're in a world of hurt. But if we all care and put the value and the needs of others above our own, how many people just here this morning care about me? At least 50. And what about you? What if your needs? 50. So when I don't have the resources, there are 49, 50 other people, what? Who are caring about me and are seeking to meet my resources. And praise God, I have seen God use the body, this body and as well the body triumphant, to meet my needs. It's overwhelming. I know somebody this week who was blessed in the same way, and they were just crying, just, just overwhelmed. It wasn't a huge gift, but it was a gift. Somebody in the body of Christ triumphant knew of a need to somebody else in the body of Christ triumphant, and they wanted to meet that need, and they did. 
totally unexpected. But it was a blessing. That's the love that we are tool to emulate. So, how would others describe your love for God? How would others describe your love for the brethren? So if we took a poll, and everybody, one of your names is a big chart here, okay? And so I'm going to Bob, Justin, Marsha, and, you know, I'm going across, across my little spreadsheet here, and I'm going to come down with the same people, okay? And I'm going to put Bob and Bob here, but Bob's now going to judge Justin. What would Bob say about Justin's love for God and his love for the brethren? What would Justin say about Bob? He'd say, no, it doesn't matter. We're not our judge. I get it. But the reality is it would help us to realize that, well, you can't deceive anybody. And the reality is that we all see one another, don't we? And, and what I want you to get is sometimes we can kind of think of God as out there and, and we'd say, well, yeah, it's, it's, it's God and I, we're cool. We're, I'm good. I do good things, right? So I'm, I'm good with God. But what would other people say? Now that's a physical testimony, isn't it? Are your possessions yours, or do you see yourself as a steward of God? Did God give you what he's given you to minister to the assembly, to minister to one another, to love one another? How important to you is the expression of God's love? The answer to that question is revealed in the answer to the previous questions. The expression of God's love for you, what he did for you, how meaningful that is to you, is going to be revealed in how you love one another. Is there then a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. You alone are God. There is none other. And you became incarnate and dwelt among us in order to meet our needs. You placed our value above your own in order to set us as an example. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in the light and reflection of that love. Lord, that we would have a fullness of joy in us because of your love flowing through us and that others would see your joy as they would see the expression of your love, that we would be like that city that is set upon a hill whose light cannot be hid, that we would have fellowship with you not walking in darkness, but magnifying you in all that we say, in all that we do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.